Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal to uh, look at the legal system and you, a special production from the Missouri Bar? I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. It's summer vacation time. Longer days, warm temperatures, and time to be out and going places doing things. The last thing on our minds is getting into legal trouble. But what about that out-of-town speeding ticket? Or water skiing while intoxicated or under the influence? Those things can pretty well spoil a holiday or a vacation real fast. So today we're going to talk it over with a lawyer who practices at Missouri's Lake of the Ozarks on how to have a safe and legal holiday. And what to do if you have a problem with the law. Eric Bergmanis is a past president of the Missouri Bar. His firm is in Camdenton, where he has represented both plaintiffs and defendants in state and federal courts, including criminal defense and various areas of civil litigation. He's also the author of the Bar's Continuing Legal Education Desk book, Boating While Intoxicated. And he has served as a municipal judge. Eric, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with each of you today. (laughs) So as we're all thinking about uh, taking out and heading out to the lake or some other nice, cool spot of water, body of water in Missouri, um, what are some things or what what are some of the most common ways where you see folks ending up on the wrong side of the law? So we're planning on vacation, planning to have fun, but what are those traps that we tend to see folks get themselves into when they're having a little too much fun? I would say the the most uh, the most common way that people get into trouble, uh, especially on a holiday weekend and especially at Lake of the Ozarks, is and this is just my quick opinion. It's it's all offense. It's all about having fun, and there's no defense. I mean, nobody's thinking we're going to get hurt. Nobody's thinking something's going to go wrong. And alcohol almost always is involved with something that goes wrong. So. You know, uh, if you've got somebody that's going to be driving, it would be a good idea to either have a designated driver that that is not drinking or if they are to uh, make sure that that the amount they consume is minimal. Is that true for both on the road and on the water? It is true for both on the road and on the water. And and, um, it seems like there's a number of different ways, you know, even if even if you don't get in trouble on the road or you don't get in trouble in a boat. Um, people at bars sometimes have too much to drink and get into uh, disagreements with other patrons or maybe with the management. And then some of those people get in trouble also either through some kind of uh, fisticuffs or uh, just rude behavior. And the next thing they know, they're, they're leaving uh, in handcuffs. So Drugs very often involved. Drugs and alcohol kind of go hand in hand. I mean, uh, people get in trouble because we used to say they get in trouble because of alcohol and you, you can add drugs in that equation also. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I, th- I think a lot of us are kind of familiar with driving while intoxicated offenses because we read about them. We know a little bit about them, but we don't know about boating while intoxicated. And are, are, they, are they similar or are they different? Well, they certainly have their similarities. Um, they're treated very much the same for punishment enhancement uh, as far as the criminal aspects are concerned. You know, how many, you know, if, if, you, if you're a repeat offender, you know, a second punishment for a second boating while intoxicated is the same as punishment for a second driving while intoxicated and, and on up the schedule. Where they're different is... Uh, the the issues relating to prosecuting them. And, and what I mean by that is 
if you stop someone for driving while intoxicated and you're a law enforcement officer and you want them to do one of the normal standard field sobriety tests that NHTSA approves, and the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration has three tests that, that are approved. It's the walk and turn test where you walk nine steps out, nine steps back, the one leg stand test where you stand on one leg for 30 seconds and count, and then the horizontal gaze nystagmus test where they move a stimulus back and forth in front of your eyes. Those tests are either impossible or very difficult to perform on a boat. So a water patrolman has a much more difficult job, in my opinion, in, in uh, gathering evidence correctly so that it can be used for prosecution. You're not going to be able to do the walk and turn test on a boat. You're not going to be able to do the one leg stand test on a boat. And when you do the, the horizontal gaze nystagmus test, you're supposed to hold the stimulus like 12 inches in front of the person's nose, slightly elevated. They're instructed to keep their head perfectly still and only follow the stimulus with their eyes. Well, usually on these weekends, the waves are pretty significant. Usually you're on a boat and I've seen uh, hundreds of videos of boating while intoxicated stops and the person's head's flopping back and forth. I mean, it's very difficult to keep the person's head still. So the water patrol starts off with a pretty big disadvantage mm -hmm. in trying to get meaningful field sobriety tests. Sometimes they'll do a counting test where you count backwards from, say, um, you know, 93 down to 76. It's not a NHTSA approved test and it's, it, there's not a scientific basis for the test. And the same thing with the alphabet test and they've got a palm pat test they try to do. Um, those tests don't have at least to date any scientific reliability. So defense attorneys are always very critical of the performance of those tests. They usually, they're supposed to use a preliminary breath test, which I sometimes refer to as a portable breathalyzer machine, to confirm that the reason for failing these other tests is alcohol-related as opposed to a medical condition. And if you blow in their little machine on the boat, the, the result of that, the, the number result is not admissible in evidence. It's just a field sobriety test for the officer to confirm that it is that your impairment comes from alcohol. And so if you blow on that and you blow over, they're, they're going to take you in. They're going to arrest you, put you in handcuffs. They should put the proper type of life preserver on you uh, to be sure that if you fall overboard, you don't have a bad experience as has happened at least once or twice in the past. So they, they start off with that problem. And then years ago, when I brought a copy with me today, I have a copy of the Missouri Watercraft Manual. It's called A Guide to Safety. I'll read a part from it if that's okay, because mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. I, I at least find this very interesting, especially if you're doing yeah. defense work. It says on page 41, it has the term boating stressors. And it says the term boating stressors commonly refers to the effects of the environment on the human body. Long-term exposure to the wind, sun, glare on the water, and the rocking of the boat can have a decidedly adverse effect on a boater. When out on the water, your body is constantly trying to combat the effects of exposure to the environment. In essence, this struggle between your body and the environment leads to boater fatigue. In advanced stages, this fatigue can cause confusion, slowed reflexes, blurred vision, and loss of coordination. A person suffering from boater's fatigue could very well fail the same coordination and motor skills tests that are part of standard sobriety testing. Boater's fatigue can progress into a state referred to as boater hypnosis. A person suffering from extreme boater fa boater's fatigue can appear to be intoxicated. In this condition, the boater loses the ability to divide his or her attention while operating the vessel. 
operators become focused on one aspect of boat operation and can fail to see hazards that are literally right in front of them. Experienced boaters will not show the effects of boaters' fatigue as quickly as non-frequent boaters. The more you boat, the less boaters' fatigue seems to affect you. This apparent immunity is nothing more than a good example of the body's ability to compensate for or adjust to external stressors regarding how well you ha- oh, regardless of how well you ha- seem to handle these, these stressors, please exercise caution. And then it says in bold letters, note, everyone is influenced by boaters' fatigue. Always give yourself periodic breaks to minimize its effects by drinking plenty of liquids and getting out of the sun when possible. So we've got this manual that's published by the state of Missouri. Uh, they've actually taken this part out of the, the recent versions. And I think part of the reason they may have is because it basically says if you've been on the water very long, you, you're going to have boaters fatigue. It says everyone's influenced by boaters fatigue. And if everybody's influenced, they could still uh, fail the same coordination tests as someone that's intoxicated. And so, you know. Uh, so it sounds like a very difficult task for a water patrol officer to try to decipher this while out in the water. It is. It's very hard for them. And then when they get the person back to the station, um, they have to read them an implied consent warning that's a little bit like the warning they read for someone in an automobile. And part of the warning says evidence of your refusal could be used against you in a court of law. The other part of the warning is this. In a car, they tell you, if you don't blow, you shall immediately lose your driver's license for a year. Well, they don't have that in the boat. And so if someone goes to the station, refuses to blow at the station, and they didn't do so well on the field sobriety tests, it may be because of boaters' fatigue, not because of intoxication. And now, really, they don't have any evidence. And if someone says, uh, you know, to the water patrolman, um, the person didn't blow. You're, you're saying that they didn't blow. The response to that seems to be, you, you, you read him a card that says he doesn't have to. He didn't do anything wrong, did he? You know. So water patrolmen definitely have a, a tough job trying to figure out how to get a result from these people. If you can't get somebody, though, for, for boating while intoxicated because of fatigue— the, you, you, the, the the boat patrolman had to be drawn to this person for some reason. Correct. Is is there an equivalent of careless and imprudent operation of a boat? There is. That, care- that you could catch somebody on in this case. There is. There's a careless and reckless operation of a boat. Um, and that can be, there's, there's a couple of, of rules on the water. You're not supposed to operate above idle speed within 50 feet of another boat that's operating and you're not supposed to operate uh, jet skis within a hundred feet of a boat if you're like jumping the wakes and things like that. So what you see is you see people maybe not paying so much attention. I I know we talked right before we went on today about the fatality that happened this past weekend at the lake. You know, we're right before the 4th of July weekend. People are down there, they're having fun and two boats that I think they were both formulas, one ran over the other one and, and someone was lost overboard. And it's my understanding they've recovered the body and the person's deceased, which is a huge tragedy. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to see that kind of uh, event at Lake of the Ozarks or any lake for that matter. Right. Are there, are there special nighttime rules on boating? There are. There's a nighttime speed limit of 30 miles per hour, and you're not supposed to exceed that. So people get stopped at night for exceeding the speed limit. Mm-hmm. Um, 
probably the most frequent reason for coming into contact with a water patrol is having improper lighting. You're only supposed to have two forms of light on your boat, or technically, I guess, three lights. In the front of your boat, you're supposed to have a green and a red light. And green is on the the starboard side and red's on the port side, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and then at the rear of your boat, you're supposed to have a white light or in the middle or the rear that can be seen from 360 degrees. And the old law used to say that you couldn't have any other lights that would be confused with those lights. Uh, there was at least one case that I'm aware of that went to the Court of Appeals where the person had, I want to say, rope lights that were multicolored and the water patrolman stopped them for having these other lights. The extra lights. The extra lights. And I think in the cross-examination, the water patrolman admitted that he could still see the red and the green light and he could see the white light and he wasn't really confused by these lights. And that case uh, was resolved in favor of the defendant. After that, the legislature changed the law and said you can't have any other lights. And so you see these boats on the water, the new pontoon boats, some of the new ski boats, even some of the big offshore type boats have, have got underwater lighting and it's all different colors. And, and some people have added extra decorative lights to their boats. You can't have those lights on when you're underway. If you have them on while you're underway, you will get stopped. And probably the most innocent, confusing, uh, seems like you're doing the right thing type of action or activity is some of these big boats have what they call docking lights. They almost look like headlights. They're in the front of the boat and there's a separate switch for them. So you turn them on when you're docking so that you can see your dock that you're pulling into. Um, people leave those on all the time. They forget they hit the wrong switch. They're not familiar with the boat and the water patrol will stop you for leaving your docking lights on when you're out operating underway. And it, it's typically a white light, but it's not a prescribed light. It's a light that's not supposed to be on. And that'll be their reason for contacting you. That, yeah. I was going to say that reminds me of the reverse of when I grew up and left my small town and moved to a large city. I would always forget to turn on my headlights because it was so bright with the city mm -hmm. lights. So it sounds a little bit like the reverse. You're, it is. Yeah. You're in a dark place. You have, you're leaving on the extra lights. And it, it seems like a safe thing to do. It, in the, the other thing that's so much different, uh, and Bob, you were talking about this earlier. What's the difference between being on the water and being on the road? There's no lanes to weave in on the, on the water. There's no traffic signals. Um, yeah, I've said for a long time that if you have someone else on your boat with you, you should have them help watch because you can get run over from behind just like you can get hit from the side or from the front. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the people that you would encounter at night may have been drinking. Many of the people think because you operate a car, you can operate a boat. Well, boats don't have brakes. Boats don't have turn signals. Boats typically are steered from the rear, not from the front, and they, they act differently. I mean, your steering wheel may be up in the front, but all the steering's coming from the back. And if you ride jet skis, the counterintuitive part of a jet ski is when you're all lined up about to hit somebody, your normal response would be get off the throttle and turn the steering wheel. If you get off the throttle and you turn the steering wheel, nothing happens because the steering all comes from the jet propulsion. You need to get partially off the throttle and turn the steering wheel. But operators that are either in a panic or uh, aren't as experienced, they get off the throttle, they turn the steering wheel, nothing happens, and they continue forward and hit whatever they're lined up to hit. There's no limit on what time of day you can operate a jet ski? 
you're not supposed to operate them um, after dark, which um, um, I think you have to stop half an hour after sunset. Mm-hmm. Um, sunset, it's still fairly light, but mm-hmm. within half an hour of sunset, I think you're supposed to be done. Um, if you had lights, it would be okay. I, you just don't typically see sea dews or jet skis with lights. And if you're operating that under the influence, is that treated the same as a boating while intoxicated? It is, yes. And then you mentioned that you've handled a case of someone who was was charged with water skiing. I did. Water skiing while intoxicated <laughs> has been a crime for as long as I've been practicing law. They moved it from one statute to another recently when they did the criminal code revision. But water skiing while intoxicated and surfing while intoxicated are still crimes. Surfing is something that people do behind these wakeboard and surf boats. Uh, you don't have to be holding on to a rope. It's simply you're on a surfboard and the way the wake comes out from the, the back and side of the boat, you, you can surf. It's illegal to do that while intoxicated. And when I was first called on a water skiing while intoxicated case, I was scratching my head saying, what could have possibly been the probable cause for stopping someone? You know, what, what would the reason be for stopping someone believing they were intoxicated while they were water skiing? And I found out pretty quickly it was, it was taking place at midnight. So uh, <laughs> that, it, and it turns out the, the operator of the boat received a ticket too that was intoxication related. Both of them were uh, alleged to be over the legal limit. Well, I could see, I could see a, a drunk skier and a sober boat operator would right. be a, an interesting case to try to handle. It would be an interesting, an interesting case. And in, in this case, they were both, they were both impaired. But yeah. uh, it was, uh, it was, it was kind of fun. Does um, so does it matter what type of apparatus you're on, or like, could you even be on one of those big round tubes and just being pulled behind a boat and that? You know, it says skiing and it says surfing. Um, I think they'd have a hard time making a case for tubing while intoxicated because there isn't a statute that prohibits that at this time. There used to be one, and it it appears that they've uh, repealed it. Part of the water skiing statute used to be the, used to include canoes. And if you were going down the river in a canoe or uh, in a, I years ago had a paddle boating while intoxicated case. And at first I thought it was, really uh, kind of overreaching by the water patrol. The kind with the, by, almost like a bike pedal that, right. yeah. Right, and Paddle you're paddling board, your way. Paddling your way. <laughs> but but here, here's what, uh, there was a horrible thunderstorm and they had basically broken into a houseboat seeking refuge from the storm, which that alerted the water patrol. And there were beer cans all over inside the paddle boat. And the paddle boat, the steering didn't work on it. Uh, they had to steer with someone's foot over the edge, holding onto the rudder with their feet. And there were, I think, four guys, and it was at night, and there were no lights. And it, it was an extremely dangerous situation. So they got a whole array of tickets, and it just so happened that one of the extra tickets was paddle boating while intoxicated, which at the time was a crime. Well, let's move away from the lakes a little bit because a lot of people go on float trips. And you yes. mentioned canoes. Yeah, the so. tubing and the canoeing reminds yeah, me of it, when you it, like to it, go on a day float trip. Are, are things different when you're talking about going out on the 11 point or something like that? Well, um, one of the more interesting laws that uh, was passed, and, and it's been around since, I believe, 
at least 2011. Um, and, and it says that if you're going down the river uh, on the rivers of this state, that you're not allowed to have a beer bong. And a beer bong uh, is a device that's intended to hold alcohol for the rapid consumption or intake of alcoholic beverages, um, including but not limited to funnels and tubes and hoses and modified containers. And a beer bong is defined as something that will hold more than four gallons of alcohol. So if you're carrying something like that with you, um, you're not supposed to take it on the rivers. And when I say that, there's, there's a subsection in the bottom of that law that says it's still okay to do it on the Mississippi River, the Missouri River, and the Osage River, just not the <laughs> other rivers. So those rivers, rivers had a good lobbyist? Mm. Or? <laughs> it, it must be. Yeah, must be. Or they weren't worried about the, <laughs> the, the pollution issues. It's, some of this seems to be targeted toward, toward polluting the rivers. Well, I've been on some float trips where there have been some people out in rather large rafts or large tubes of some kind, and it's uh, it's been pretty clear to me that they've been having too much fun. And so I, 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 other than the fact that there are very few water patrolmen on some of these streams because they're all focused on the lakes, uh, can you get into serious trouble when you have a whole tube full of people or a whole raft full of people and you're, you're, you're swilling away pretty well? I think, I think that's legal. Um, the, the, the takeaway cautionary point that I think I would like to tell people about is rivers and canoeing is a really fun sport and the rivers look relatively tame. Um, I have a friend that's a professional bass fisherman that has been highly successful and on one of the the more, it was the Niagara River, he hit a log going down there and injured his back and wasn't able to fish for nearly a year because of the injury he received from running the canoe into a log. And he's a guy that I'm sure has had more hours on the water than anybody else I know. And if a guy like that gets hurt, you know, I, I would say everybody should use caution going down those rivers. And I've had at least one friend who's rendered CPR and saved someone that that overturned in their canoe and got stuck under a root wad. And if you hit a log at any kind of an angle, you can overturn your canoe. If the canoe turns in a way where the, the top side is facing upstream, it will fill up with water and wedge into that log so tight, you may need a tractor to pull it out with a chain because it's just too much pressure. And if a person gets caught in there, it it's a way that someone could drown. So, and most of us probably, again, don't stop to think that when you start drinking, usually the first thing to go is your uh, oh, your kind of sense of, you know, you lose some common sense. You lose some judgment. And, and you don't lose it immediately. You lose your inhibition at first. <laughs> and then later you start to lose your judgment. And, and water can be a dangerous place. And most of the places we're talking about, rivers and the lake, it's not a swimming pool where it's clear and you can see someone on the bottom. If you lose someone in the lake or you lose someone in a deep part of the river, you might not get them out before it's too late. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into common English. Judge? Legalese. Driving under the influence. Driving while intoxicated. DWI. These are frightening words to the driver pulled over by police and asked to take a sobriety test. What is under the influence or 
driving while intoxicated. Actually, the phrase in Missouri law is driving while intoxicated. What matters is a person's blood alcohol content, BAC. And it's a measure of how much alcohol is in your blood. The legal limit in Missouri and most states is 0.08%. This means that your blood is 0.08% alcohol. That's just a little bit less than 1% of your blood. Larger persons may not be as affected by this level as smaller persons. Men may not be as affected as women, but the law sets the limit of 0.08% for everyone, big or small, male or female. When I was younger, the limit was 0.15% or nearly twice what the limit is today. Why the change? Science. And of course, lobbying by anti-drunk driving organizations like Mothers Against Drunk Driving. These advocates noted that many drivers are at least somewhat impaired at the lower 0.08% level. It may not seem to be a serious impairment, but the data do show that there are more accidents where drivers are at or above 0.08% uh, than if their blood alcohol level is at a lower point. So the law applies equally to everyone. There is no defense that I am so fat that 0.08% alcohol doesn't affect me as much. The drunk driving law applies to those driving boats as well as cars. DWI for car drivers, BWI for boaters, boating while intoxicated. The problem for the water patrol on Missouri lakes is that there are not marked lanes on the water. Boaters, sober or not, tend to go back and forth, the kind of behavior that on the road would tell a traffic officer that the car driver ought to be stopped for suspicion of driving while intoxicated. The water patrol officers may have to rely on whether the boat driver looks like he or she is having too much fun. Most, but not all, persons begin to feel relaxed at half the legal limit, 0.04%. At 0.08%, most people experience a definite impairment of muscle function and driving skills. At the old limit of 0.15%, balance and movement are affected in nearly all people. The current 0.08% limit there probably are fewer deaths because of the lower limit for DWI, but there are other factors at play in reducing traffic deaths. For instance, our cars are built to be safer than they were in the past. There may be fewer drunk drivers on the road. Uber, Lyft, and the traditional taxis are safer alternatives. But of course, the Uber and Lyft and taxi factor is driven, if you will, by stricter DWI standards. And what about boating while intoxicated? Uber or lift boats? Well, not yet anyway. Legal ease. If you're out with a group of friends, you're canoeing or tubing or floating down a river, um, and I take it water patrol are also responsible for patrolling our rivers as well as our lakes. If um, one is at the side of the bank and asks for you to come over and present identification. Is that a reasonable request? Is that something that you should adhere or follow to? I think you should always respect the water patrol or the law enforcement and you should do that. The question is, you know, do they have probable cause to uh, investigate or do they have reasonable suspicion to, um, to stop you? Now, there, there's a, a thing called a Terry type stop where if there's been some type of a crime and they know, and you're in the area, they may be able to ask you who you are and what you're doing there. Um, so you're going down the river. I'm not sure that they have that kind of uh, authority 
unless they've seen something, you know, unless they've got some kind of suspicion, you look suspicious because, and if they can articulate that, yeah, you probably have to go and it'd probably be better to go be polite and sort out any uh, constitutional issues later in, as opposed to taking off running or uh, making it hard on them to, to get to, to meet with you. Are there some, are there littering laws in, especially in the national scenic riverways? Are there litter, anti-littering laws yes. and things like that, that people can get, pick up, can get picked up for? Yeah. You let beer cans float downstream or you let something fall over the side of your canoe and you don't make an effort to, to, to pick it up. But one of the, a case we tried a long time ago, uh, was a case called Jenkins. And it all started when a lady let a beer bottle get away from her and off the side of a pontoon boat. And that was the officer's reason for stopping the pontoon boat, which ultimately resulted in her father being arrested for boating while intoxicated. And I think, are glass bottles allowed on the waterways still today? Or are there limitations on what type of, um, I, th- I guess, materials that you can have Glass you. glass bottles are are prohibited on those on those riverways. You're not mm-hmm. supposed to take glass containers. You're supposed to make sure that your cooler is adequately secured. You're not supposed to lose things out of your cooler. Um, I may even have that that part of the law with me today. I I brought some things that I thought we might talk about. I was going to say so if you're prone to tip, which I have on canoe trips, <laughs> you better make have a lot of bungee cords in place. I'm guessing and just. I know sometimes when I was younger and would go floating with friends, I wouldn't want to lose anything important if we tipped over. So I would leave my driver's license, you know, tucked away, locked in my glove box of my vehicle. Is that something that you should actually have on you when you're boating, whether on a lake or on a river, um, to have some form of identification? I'm not so sure about the rivers. I mean, you take the chance of losing them. I don't think it's a crime to not have identification. Um, Obviously, it could be helpful as far as explaining who you are, but I don't, there's not a law that says you have to have an ID on you to go floating. Uh, a lot of times if you're in a boat and you're stopped, they want you to produce some ID so that they will know who they're dealing with. But it, it's not a crime not to have ID on you. And while the rivers and the lake are open for the public, where does that boundary end? Like if you want to stop and bank and have lunch on your float trip or if you decide that you want to get out because something looks really cool along the side of the lake, can you actually do that or is that trespassing? It's trespassing. You're not supposed to be up on other people's real estate, their their land, and you're not supposed to be on their docks either or on their boats or that type of thing. Uh, the Lake of the Ozarks is really interesting from the standpoint of its origin when Union Electric was acquiring um, property to flood because some of the property, the, the residents actually owned to the center of the cove and Union Electric only had um, an easement to flood and cut timber. So the landowner may still own to the center of the cove, but you're going to be okay if you're using what Union Electric has and now it's Ammer and UE. In other words, if you're on the water, you're, you're in the water, you're going to be okay. But that doesn't give you permission to get on their land or to get on their docks. That's a good question, though, because people do that all the time. And what if you have an emergency while you're out? You know, sometimes on rivers, it's a really remote area. Um, The lake could probably feel pretty remote, even though you might be able to see things around you. You could be really far away um, from a shoreline. Any tips or suggestions on um, cell phones might make this easier today, but on who to call or how to 
get help? I would absolutely recommend taking a cell phone along so that you would have that for for uh, help if you can make contact. And there's a few other you know, remote camping devices. Uh, uh, there's a device called InReach. I know some pilots use them. I know people that go on, you know, extensive backpacking, uh, wilderness backpacks use them. You could take one of those, but um, a cell phone's probably your 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 best option. On the waterways, one last question about law enforcement. Um, you know, on roads, you could, if you're in a town, you could get a municipal ticket or you could get a, share, a ticket from the sheriff's office for a county or state with highway patrol and i guess the federal if you were have had some type of federally regulated or licensed you know big equipment or moving um is the same true with waterways or does the water patrol have exclusive jurisdiction over missouri's waterways i believe that it's it's the water patrol and and the highway patrol because again they're the same entity have the jurisdiction over the water now there are places where you could be inside a city limit, and the big question is, is your dock inside the city limit? So the dock's attached to your property. It's out on top of the water, and you're shooting off these really big fireworks at the 4th of July. And when the Osage Beach police come, you know, do you have to pay attention to them? And I would suggest it's probably a, a way better idea to say, uh, yes, sir, we didn't realize we were still in the city limits on our dock, but we will stop right now. And usually I think if you do that, they will leave and not issue your, you a ticket. But if you want to keep uh, shooting fireworks, my suspicion is they will give you a ticket for that. They may even take you off your dock. So uh, if you're in the city limits, uh, you're you're not able to shoot off fireworks in the city of Osage Beach, and they're going to treat your dock as, as if it was part of the the, the land. With your with your background at the Lake of the Ozarks, I just have to ask you this: the Party Cove. Yes. <laughs> Does, is, are, is that a is that a a law enforcement problem? Very often or very much. Well, it used to be a huge law enforcement problem, and there's a couple other things we could talk about. I don't want to run out of time because I just thought of a couple other things. We ought to talk about sobriety checkpoints. We ought to talk about fueling your boat. We might want to talk about sound levels. We might want to talk about. Uh, underage boating and whether, you know, when you need a license and when your child needs to have a life preserver on, sure. we, we can talk about all those things. Yeah. But, but to hit your question, um, I happen to live one cove away from Party Cove. And on a Saturday evening at five o'clock when people were leaving to either go shower or go to dinner, I wouldn't leave my cove. It was too dangerous. It'd be 12 boats wide, big boats wide open. They've been in Party Cove all day. And it was just crazy. Uh, today, uh, about a year ago, I took my daughter water skiing in Party Cove on a Saturday weekend, which would have been unheard of wow. 10 years ago. And literally, and I'm this is my best estimate, but there were four or five boats and they were doing a track, I say a track, kind of a course that looked like it was about a maybe a mile in, in a big oval. And everybody's water skiing and having a great time. And way, 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 way in the back of Party Cove, there were probably, again, an estimate, 30 or 40 boats tied up. There used to be thousands of boats mm -hmm. tied up. And it doesn't seem to be being used like it used to. And so here's the question, and the question is why, right? Right. And I think I have the answer, but it's just my opinion. In the last five, six years at Lake of the Ozarks, maybe a little longer, they've put in all these big pool bars. And it looks like the crowd that kind of used to go to 
Party Cove is now going to these pool bars, these swim up bars where you can be in the water and someone will serve you drinks. And um, those places are probably hopefully better supervised, better managed for, you know, some type of danger. First of all, the water's clear. You can see the bottom. There's people there serving that hopefully have not been drinking. And that seems to be uh, where all of this is gone. It's the new trend. It's it's the new trend. That's, that's, it's the new trend. People go to pool bars. They don't seem to be going to Party Cove. There's a few places on the lake where people still anchor up and gather, but it's not the way Party Cove used to be, in my opinion today. Well, I was always interested. I, I, I never had a feel for how many tickets or offenses were ever written at the Party Cove. It was but almost I, a guarantee lawyers that did criminal defense would get new cases after every weekend in the 12 or 14 weeks that occur in the summer. After every weekend, there were going to be tickets. And there were usually one or two water patrolmen stationed just on the edge or outside of Party Cove or under the Grand Glaze Bridge where almost everybody had to go after leaving Party Cove. So they just right. wait on them to come out and pick out a, a, a target. When I was a TV local TV news reporter many moons ago, I was sent on a holiday weekend to go cover the Party Cove. <laughs> and uh, a boat rental said that they had some folks that had not returned their boat yet. And so he was going to look for them in Party Cove. So I did a ride along with him. And I was in a suit with, you know, one man band with a video camera over my shoulder trying to interview people <laughs> over the edge of the boat. And I can say that I, at the time, I had no idea before I got there. You heard about it, but the number of boats, the number of people, and it there was just kind of like a circle of water patrol boats, but they didn't do interviews at that point. They had stopped doing interviews about it because they didn't want to highlight it and have even more people see it as a destination. And back in that day, they started doing these roadblocks, these sobriety checkpoints, but Again, water versus land, mm-hmm. you can funnel through, you know, you can make people drive down a certain road and stop them. You know, how you block off a cove and then, you know, to, to stay in, inside the constitutional requirements of a legitimate means of stopping, like you're stopping every boat that's uh, upstream or you're stopping every red boat or every other boat. I mean, how do you determine who's going upstream and downstream coming out of party cove and how once you get a boat stopped someone has to stay with the boat someone has to take the person that's supposedly drunk to town and now you've just got two boats out of commission where these sobriety checkpoints are way more organized they bring the ba test machine you know to the sobriety checkpoint have you ever had to defend a case i've done several that way but Mm -hmm. somewhere in the middle of the uh, arm wrestling over What's constitutional and what isn't? Uh, oftentimes, the the prosecution makes an offer that the the person charged wants to take. In other words, maybe the offer gets better because of all the problems that could yeah. be raised with a sobriety checkpoint on the water. You mentioned noise a minute ago. I hadn't thought of noise. There's a decibel uh, limit of 86 decibels, so you can make noise on the water, but you can't be loud enough where another recreational boat, someone in a recreational boat would hear it from 50 feet away that would be in excess of 86 decibels. And the water patrolmen have decibel meters with them. And so if your boat's really loud and they get within 50 feet of you, they will give you a ticket. We've And we had, talk about loud, is that music and person volume or is that also can 
like if your boat is really loud and it has will, a really high that. loud engine. Okay. Well, it's that. It's it's motor, it's yeah. those really loud boats. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's several in my cove, and four or five of them, and they come out usually on a Saturday morning. And I don't know if they have them above 86 or not. I find them kind of interesting and fun to watch. You know, it's kind of <laughs> like in the wintertime, it's very peaceful and quiet there. And I like that. And then when summertime comes, the carnival starts and it's <laughs> it's pretty fun to watch, too. You might not want to have it all year long, but it's it's pretty inter- interesting and entertaining. For- this has become a bigger issue, I suspect, because we're getting so many bigger boats with bigger engines out there. And uh, you can't have a bigger engine on a, on, a, on a boat and muffle it very well. You know— they have a way to do what they call captain's choice, where you can flip a switch and make the exhaust go underwater, and it really does muffle it. Mm-hmm. It, I think, you can't get exhaust out of the engine as fast, and so it probably makes the boat's performance less. In other words, you won't go as fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some of those people with those big boats really like their big motors, and they like the noise. I mean, that's it's just part of the part of the fun, and and. There are people who don't care for it, and I guess for that reason, the, the 86 decibel level is in place. You mentioned underage boating. You yes. have to have a, you have to be 16 or 14 or 15, whatever it is. Yeah, I it's I think it's you can't you got to be at least 14, mm-hmm. or else you have to have someone with you that's at least 16, which. Kind of parallels the graduated driver's license standards, I think. Right. Um, you've got you've, you've to be at least, at least 14. And if you were born after January 1st of 84, you have to have a boater safety course. Mm-hmm. So if you look at your birth date and you were born after January 1 of 84, you're not supposed to be boating unless you've had the boater safety course. And that's so, true for any age? Any, any age. After, after, if you were born then, boater safety course. Mm-hmm. What, I what, guess people, what, what is in a boater safety course? Um, I, I'm sure it covers things like we talked about earlier about mm-hmm. the, the effects of the environment on you. Um, probably ru- rules of the road, lights, you know, what kind of lights are required and mm-hmm how you're supposed to pass another boat. If you're passing on, I don't want to get this wrong, the starboard side, I may have, I have to look. Most people are never going to be this this technical, but if you're passing, if you know you're going to pass on the starboard side, starboard side to starboard side, you're supposed to hit your horn and do two short blasts. Mm-hmm. If you're passing on the port side, you're supposed to do one short blast. And I always think of the port side as if you're at the steering wheel, it's on the left and the starboard's on the right. Most of the time, the rules of the water are going to be similar to the rules of the road. You meet somebody head on, you should pass on the right, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're dead head on. Uh, but if you're a little off and it looks like you're going to go port side to port side, you're supposed to do these two short blasts, which um, it, it seems... It seems a little odd. Meeting head-on, you're supposed to do one short blast and pass on the right. On the right, but nobody pays attention to that, and and I've never seen anybody stopped for that. But it it's I would assume that some of that is in the the boater safety course. There's, I've never taken it. I probably should go take it. <laughs> uh, if you get in trouble for boating while intoxicated, they usually require that you take the course, and it's online. You can take it. Online, I've heard it takes about four hours. 
Um, but so it's it's an in depth course. It's not just something that you go and wrap up in twenty minutes, like a correct. And I think it's set up a little bit, perhaps like the notary test, that if you get the answers wrong, you get to go back and redo them until you <laughs> get them right. I I I think they're going to help you get through it, but it's not something that I've never heard of anybody getting through it in one or two hours. It it takes some time to get through it. So even if you're on vacation and you're renting a boat and you don't plan to ever drive a boat again, you need to have prepared before your vacation and taken this course. Uh, yes. If, if you are if you were born before 84, before January 1 of 84, you don't. I'm sorry. If you were born after, you do. Okay. The other thing that some people don't know is you cannot have a child on your boat unless they have a life jacket on if they're under the age of seven. So until they're seven, they have to have a life jacket at on. all times. At all times. What What's the rules about having life jackets yeah. on boats, even for adults? You have to have at least one personal flotation device for each person on your boat, which is going to be, you know, an approved, a Coast Guard approved um, mm -hmm. life saving device because they they want you to have one in case something goes bad, somebody goes overboard. But but you don't have to be wearing it. You don't have to be wearing it. That's correct. Which is. Is the same you know, true while you're like on a jet ski or yes, a, absolutely. Okay. You would have to have one on when you're on a jet ski. Okay. I'm not positive, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you have to have one while you're water skiing also. Well, we, we've, we've talked about operating boats and so on on the on rivers and, and streams, but there are, there are land problems that people run into on vacations. You're on vacation, you get picked up somewhere for speeding in the area. You're trying to you're, find your hotel and instead yeah. didn't pay attention to the and, speed and you, limit. you live side. in another state 250 miles away or something. How, how do you handle that? What's the best way for a person to handle that? If you live that far away, um, I mean, I, I, I do some defense work and I have kind of this opinion on speeding tickets. First of all, you never know when you're going to get one. You think you're driving the speed limit. I've, I've got a car that tells me um, what the speed limit is in the area I'm in. And I can tell you when I go through Lynn Creek, it's lower than what my car tells me. So my car's wrong. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you're going to have the fight with a police officer about what's right, his sign or your car, you're, you're going to lose. <laughs> so um, you never know for sure, or at least I say you're never going to know for sure. So I would call a lawyer who does that kind of work in the area where you receive the ticket and have them help you with it. Mm -hmm. Because there's an, a lot of times you can... Um, have an amendment done to the ticket, which would either, it, it, it would cause you to not receive points or maybe not even to receive a violation on your license. And the states typically operate under an interstate compact, which means they share the information, but every state's got a little bit of a different law. Like some states are three violations in, you know, 18 months, our state's eight points in 18 months. And there's a different schedule for how points are assigned. And if you if you value your driving privileges, um, and sometimes you know maybe you get stopped three times in a year, and in Missouri, um, you get three points on the highway for speeding, and you, every year you go a whole year without getting a new any new points, a third come off. But let's say you get a ticket every six months, um, in eighteen months you're going to lose your driver's license, and there are some jurisdictions that are fairly good to work with. And there's some that are very, very rigid and they're not going to waver on what they do with you. And because you don't want that last place you get a ticket to be someplace that will not 
have any grace or sympathy or mercy, not even if you do a bunch of community service or if you do something else to keep the points off your license, you could lose your driver's license. I, I think they should. I think you should protect your license if it's important to you. And for most of us, it is. So no, do you I, not think that you, after you get home from your vacation and a month later you find this ticket in your cup holder, do you not think that it won't catch up with you someday? Generally, it, it will catch up with mm -hmm. you. The, the exceptions would be if you're never coming back to Missouri again, uh, it may not catch up with you. Uh, in Missouri, if you don't handle your tickets, even your municipal tickets, they turn them in to the driver's license bureau and they put a hold on your, they suspend your license for failing to take care of a ticket. So um, I think generally speaking, um, speeding tickets are not federal offenses. They're not the most difficult case to handle and, and you should get someone to help you with them. That's, that's my belief, my opinion. I've been a couple of times in my long driving career, I've been stopped in other states and they've issued me a ticket and the, the trooper, and this was back in the days when you carried checkbooks with you, which is those things are going away. But the trooper offered to drive me to the nearest mailbox <laughs> where I could write out a check, put it in the ticket, and drop it in the mailbox. Then in there. And, hand, and handle it that way. And I don't suppose that that's used very much anymore. I don't know that it is. I think I've had that experience once before, and I would recommend politely saying thank you for the help or information, but... Um, I'll take care of it later when I get home and, and mm -hmm. take the ticket and go home. If they'll let you mail it that day, they'll let you mail it tomorrow yeah. or the next day as well. Yeah. I, I would go home and at least give myself some time to think about it and maybe call an attorney and see what they would want to charge for help in resolving the matter. But it's easy to get into, it's not easy, but if you get in trouble in a less trafficy way, like you slug somebody in a bar, uh, that's when you really need to call somebody like you. Oh, I've, I have a new case right now where some young people were at a bachelor party and when they left, um, they left, one of them left in handcuffs and he was charged with a class A felony, which is 10 to 30, 10 years to 30 years in prison. And his bond, if I remember right, was $300,000. Wow. And so you thought you were going just to have some fun and this person um, wasn't even in the altercation. Um, it, it, he was kind of mistaken for someone that was, apparently, maybe. Mm -hmm. And um, you can get in a lot of trouble without really um, intending to. It's, mm -hmm. it's kind of like the, the offense-defense part. You're, you're coming down there to have fun, but you, you need to— Pay attention to where you are and, you know, what's going on, because if something goes wrong and you're in a spot that may not be a good place to be, uh, you can find yourself going to jail. And When you're on vacation, if you do find yourself receiving a citation or even getting arrested um, or even maybe questioned, involved in something as you just described, um, should you be trying to call back home and talk to a lawyer there, or is it better to have someone who is local? It would be way better to have someone that's local that knows kind of what the local law enforcement do, the local prosecutors do, the local judges do. It, it would be way more advantageous. And someone that knew the local laws also, someone that knew the 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 laws in the jurisdiction. Because if you're from Iowa and you're calling your friend in Iowa, now calling your friend in Iowa might be a place to start for a referral to call someone at the lake. 
But in the heat of the battle, when it's going on, and I say battle, you don't want to ever be in a fight with law enforcement. But um, you should ask to call a lawyer in, on a boating while intoxicated or driving while intoxicated case. They're supposed to give you 20 minutes to call a lawyer. They don't have to tell you that, though. And most people don't know it. They don't know that they're entitled to 20 minutes and they should get, be given a phone and some like a phone book, a method of being able to make that phone call. And that will help them in making their decision as to what they should do next. So they should request a lawyer um, right then, early on. And there's a lot of lawyers that have their names in the phone book. My name's in the phone book. And my wife's answered an awful lot of calls at one and two o'clock in the morning. So, um, and, and woken me up to, to, to talk to them. There, there was one other thing, and I don't know how we're doing time-wise, and I don't know if you... We're unlimited. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> um, we handle some really bad boat wreck cases, and we also handle some boat explosion cases. And there have been a number of those in the last few years. There was one this year. And you said boat explosion. Explosion cases, mm-hmm. right. And most of the time, boats are exploding because of a problem with the fuel system. And the the cases that we seem to be encountering are where the gas is not making it to the gas tank or if it's it, – it basically is gas not getting to the gas tank. And it doesn't get to the gas tank for one of a couple reasons. Uh, the hose comes disconnected from the deck fill. The clamps aren't sufficient to hold it for whatever reason and you pump gas straight into your bilge or um, – the hose has been there for a while and maybe it was too long to start with and it has a kink in it and where that kink is maybe fine for a number of years, but later it starts to kind of rot or deteriorate and then gas leaks mm-hmm. down. And, it, and most people know a couple of things that gas is heavier than air. So, or gas fumes are heavier than air. So they go to the bottom um, and gas itself doesn't burn, but it's the fumes coming off of it. It's the vapor that's mixing with the air. And when there's some type of an ignition source, some kind of a spark, some people theorize that it could be as little as static electricity from a cell phone, um, you wind up with an explosion. And we've represented people that were uh, horribly burned. The, the case we did in 2014 um, was the biggest verdict in the state of Missouri that year. It was it was a really big verdict, but this poor man uh, was burned over three quarters, or no, seventy five percent of his body third degree burns, and oh, wow. it was it was catastrophic, uh, a really really bad burn case. So my tip was going to be this: um, when I fuel my boat, and this is just my personal preference, I have people get off. I don't let them sit on the boat while it's being gassed up because I'm afraid that if anything goes wrong, they'll be hurt. Is that typically in the cases that you've handled the t- point in time when an explosion happens? It's usually at or right after fueling. And the people that get hurt the very worst or the people that are hurt really bad are still on the boat. So if you're not on the boat, even if you're standing on the dock nearby, usually you come out in good shape. But if you're standing in the middle of a fire that's 1,200 degrees, you know, you think about setting your oven when you're baking cookies and how hot that is. Uh, 1,200 degrees that completely envelops your body is really a bad situation. And um, In Missouri, do you, are you allowed to fuel your own boat or do there have to be fuel handlers. That's a great question. Um, I kind of remember as a kid, 
we used to go to a lake in Arkansas and you couldn't fuel your own boat there. You can fuel your own boats at Lake of the Ozarks. And, and I, I think they're starting to change that, but the, the marinas that have been there before, through, before are grandfathered in where you can still fuel your own boat. But there's a million issues there too. Some of the marinas have had issues with their line leak detectors. Line leak detectors are a pressure system that will tell you if the pressure changes significantly. And on days when it's hot, in the afternoon and cool in the morning, the pressure changes. And so sometimes those line leak detectors will come on and act like there's a leak when there isn't. And so the marinas lose money on their gas and some of them have been known to even take the detectors out. It'd be kind of like taking the smoke detector out of your home. Oh, wow. It's not a good idea. Yeah. But some of them have done that. And so then you get gas leaking near your boat, maybe not in it. Um, some of them have got fuel nozzles that are seven inch instead of five inch. And when you're sticking a fuel nozzle in a metal deck fill and it's longer, it's going to come to that rubber hose and push against it. And you don't want the rubber hose to become disconnected from the deck fill because then you don't have gas getting into the tank. You have it going into the bilge. And I haven't actually seen this case. I've heard about them, that some of the people working on the docks are young kids. It's a great job because you get to be in the sun all day and you get good tips. I've heard, not seen or had the case, but where they've put gas in the wrong hole, like in the the ski pole hole or something like that. Well, that's not going to find its way into the gas tank either. (laughs) And so you you just, you need to, you need to pay attention uh, to the fuel system. And, you know, you should check your hose that goes to your tank and you're supposed to be able to see it, but many of the boats you can't. The ABYC regs say you, you have to be able to see it either through a clear panel or you can look at it or you can open a hatch. There's a lot of boats that you have no way of looking at your hose, but you get your boat dewinterized or you get it winterized or you had it in for a mechanic to look at it. If you've got any age on it, ask them to look at it, ask them to, to check it. I had one of my boats, I had the, the fuel line uh, replaced. I, and they said it didn't look bad. And I said, well, the boat's old enough. I want it replaced anyway. Mm-hmm. And they did because you want to make sure that gas gets to the tank. Um, this is something we've said before in a courtroom. Gas is the most dangerous substance known to man that the average person comes into contact with on a daily basis. And if you think about it, it's not uranium-235, mm-hmm. but you, you handle gas almost every day. And if you get gas in a in a small area and the fumes coming off of it, I can't remember. I think one of our experts said it's a, a shot glass is the same. A shot glass full of gas has the same potential power as a stick of dynamite. I mean, it's it's amazing how how powerful it is. Most of the time... It doesn't get you because the air temperature mixture of the vapors with the air never quite lines up. But if and when it does, the the results are horrific, and it would be good if that didn't happen. I had a friend who was with the boat patrol way, way back, and he always said that the key thing after you refuel the boat before you start it or anything is to turn on the vent fans and let them run for a little while. And I suppose some of these explosions are a result of not venting an area back there. You know, that's that's an interesting question. And, and I, uh, the, the reason they put vent fans on there, they call them blowers. Mm-hmm. The reason they put those on there is for exactly what you said, to, to suck the vapors out of the bilge area of the boat. 
But if you have gas sitting down there that's not in the tank, it isn't going to help you for very long unless you just leave the blowers on constantly. And again, it could even be a situation where, um, you know, you get the wind the wrong direction or the blowers don't get all the fumes out. And once once the explosions happened, it's it's really bad. Um, the other question that keeps coming up in these cases is, where did the spark come from? And we never really worry about that because you're not supposed to have gas in the bilge of the boat. If we have to pick where the sp- spark comes from, we could just be wrong and then we look like we're not being honest. And so mm-hmm. we don't follow that rabbit trail. But parts in a boat are supposed to be ignition source protected, which means they're not supposed to spark. But you got a bilge pump that's electric. And when the when the fluid starts coming up, it's going to kick on. Your blowers, when you turn it on, there's electricity being delivered to the blower. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can't figure out what's going on, you're going to hit your lift hatch, which is an electric button that has a, uh, a a lift that comes up that's electric too there's three places where electricity is going on down inside the bilge and again the way these things are made and designed they're supposed to not let a spark get away but when you've got boats on the water that are well over 10 years old uh you're gonna you're gonna see see some issues so to speak so just like you said a reminder to get an oil change on your vehicle you should maybe add this to the list of things if you have a boat or if you run a boat, maybe asking them the last time that that was checked out. Yeah, or if you can, if you could inspect it yourself, look at it. But most of the boats that are rentals in the newer places are going to be boats that are within a few years old. It's typically not a boat that's within a few years old that's going to have a rotten um fuel hose. Those fuel hoses, there's a lot of them on the lake that are probably 30 years old that are probably I don't want to say 30 years is okay, but um, th- that it actually held up really well. You know, if they're they're not in the direct sunlight, you know, they've got a uh, gas going through it, which is, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a lubricant, but it's got oil in it. Uh, some of those work. I, I would just encourage people to, to look at them. And if you go to a marina where they fill your boat and everybody gets off and then the, the, the next question is where should everybody be when you start it and almost everybody's going to be on the boat um i let people on and then i start mine but i do have the blowers going just like just like you say well in a case of a rental if if you're the person who rents the boat and the person who i mean the person who rents the boat from the company that owns the boat or if you're the owner of the boat that rents it what legal liability do the two parties have in 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 operating that boat safely uh, or making sure that you're getting a safe boat when when I go to rent a boat. I think when you go to rent the boat, the the company renting it to you is responsible for it being a safe boat. I, I think it's on them. Uh, that being said, it's always good to protect yourself. If if when you're filling up and you're done, you smell uh, gasoline odors that seem excessive it would be a good idea to tell somebody. And if your boat won't start, maybe you go get somebody to help you as opposed to you crawling underneath there yourself and working on it, especially if it's a rental. I'd I'd call the people that rented you the boat and have them work on it as opposed to you working on it. If if it breaks down in the middle of the Lake of the Ozarks, 
is is the person who rented me that boat liable for finding some way to get out to rescue me or I think they are. Yeah. You know, if, if it breaks down due to something that was wrong with a boat as opposed to operator air, mm-hmm. and it might even be their fault if it was operator air, if they didn't give you proper instruction on how to operate the boat. If I was renting boats on Lake of the Ozarks, I would have people uh, watch a short video, I think, on what they were supposed to do, just mm-hmm. kind of like Farah was saying earlier about they, they got you on video before they let you go hang gliding, I guess. Is that right? Um, and you know, be clear on what the, um, the, the minimum, you'd like them to do something more than just the minimum requirements. You'd like them to make sure that you're capable of running the boat because I've seen plenty of grown adults who probably drive a car just fine, assuming that they can drive a boat, but boats are different. Uh, talking about being a bit more adventurous on vacation, I told you a story about how I went hang gliding. And before I did, I had to sign a li- liability and also, uh, you know, go through their training materials, sign a liability release waiver, and then also record a video of me reading a portion of the release waiver, I guess, to verify I am who I say I am in a video format. Um, it was an amazing experience and I loved it. But what if you've decided to go zip lining or parasailing or do something fun on your vacation and you end up getting injured, but you've signed one of those releases? Is there still a legal application or? I think the, the, the quick, fast, easy answer for that is find someone in that area that does that kind of law and take the release into them and tell them about what happened for Hypothetically, you're skiing in Colorado and you're going to rent skis and you're going to rent boots and you're going to tell them that you're a, a beginner skier and you go out and the bindings don't turn loose and you break your leg or you tear something horribly in your knee. And then you go find out that when the bindings were checked later that they put it on an advanced system that was really tight as opposed to uh, a beginner uh, tightening, which would be very loose, where the ski would break loose easily if you were you know, in a turn and it wasn't working. In my opinion, then you would have a cause of action against the company that rented you the skis when you, you know, you filled out the form that said, I'm a beginner and they put it on an advanced setting, which is going to be way tighter. If you've got something like that, you may have a cause of action. It may vary from state to state. You know, I'm guessing Colorado has some laws that are fairly favorable for ski operation services. But I, I still would, instead of just giving up and never checking, I would find a lawyer that did that type of work and ask them because, you know, the, the average person hasn't been to law school. You know, even sometimes the average lawyer may not practice in that area. But you'd want to find somebody who practices in that area to get an opinion. And what if you're not, you're not doing something necessarily adventurous <laughs> like we just described, but instead riding along in a boat. I remember a few years ago, there was a video um, from Lake of the Ozarks that went kind of viral in social media around here where um, there was a video of a group of folks on a boat and I guess they hit other waves and it literally threw everybody in the boat up and they looked like they were rag dolls oh. and were injured. Um is that something like whose fault is that? Or is that just a risk that you're taking being on the water? I'm confident that I think I've seen that same video. And if I remember right, that boat was going at a very high rate of speed and those people were thrown. And one of them, I believe, was injured, as you're discussing. 
uh, I think it's an operator fault. I think that was operator error. I think if if anybody was responsible for the injuries, it would be the operator of that boat. And a lot of times we go on vacations with friends and family and use their houses or boats or other apparatuses. Have you had situations where it gets tricky like that, where maybe if, you know, one family member was responsible for a friend's injuries and do you still right. pursue legal? Well, oftentimes they do. Um, but if you kind of think about it for just a second, most people that have large watercraft have insurance policies. And there's a number of reasons for buying insurance. One of the reasons would be to, you know, preserve your assets if you get sued. So you pay premiums for a reason. You know, you pay them so that the company that is insuring you will get you out of the mess that you got into. And they're supposed to be the experts at getting you out of the mess. Another reason to buy insurance, I would hope, would be so that if you accidentally hurt someone, that they would be compensated. And if you're willing to buy policies that would compensate a stranger, why wouldn't you want the insurance to compensate your friend or your family member? I mean, if you had a friend that was injured, would you like to just leave them injured and let them ferret it out and figure it out themselves? Or would you want them to be compensated? So hypothetically, you're running your boat down the lake, you don't see the big waves coming and you hit them hard and someone gets thrown or gets injured. I would think you would probably want your policy to pay. And usually the policy holder has the right to tell the insurance company, yeah, I think I made a mistake here. I really want you to pay. And if your company isn't helping you in that way, you might want to uh, get your own attorney to, to put some, you know, send a letter to your insurance company saying, please help these people. I, I feel like I made a mistake because I make this joke every now and then about lawyers that uh, if you know you're always going to be 100% perfect, you should double your rates and cancel your insurance. You know, <laughs> and nobody, nobody really wants to do that. I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm hoping I never make a mistake, but we're all human. And you know, if you pulled out in front of somebody on the road and you hurt them, would you want your policy to pay? And and I would think you would. Is there any advice that you would give, um, you know, so many people, I see so many happy memories being made as people are on vacation on our waterways here in Missouri. Um, but at the same time, tragedies can happen. Um, we mentioned earlier there was a fatal accident this weekend at Lake of the Ozarks. Um, there was the devastating duck boat um, drownings and accident that took place last year. Is there something... Is there anything that we can learn as individuals before we go on vacation and take with us to make sure that we have a safer experience? You know, um, I, I sometimes say nobody takes care of you like you do, you know, that you should, you know, look at what you're getting ready to go do before you do it. You know, the Internet today provides so many different options for learning information I can tell you, I've been in a number of restaurants over the years and heard somebody talking about a case that I'm involved in. And I can tell that they got the facts 100% wrong. And I sit there and eat my meal and I never say anything because I can't, you know, I'm just not going to say anything. And for that reason, I kind of hate to say I got the duck boat case all figured out because it's not our case. We didn't do it. But what I have heard is that the weather was really bad that day and that it was predicted to be very bad that day. 
And I know there are people out there that are very critical of the boat company and the captain for taking the boat out on that day because of the weather. I don't know precisely what the weather was like, but I've heard that maybe it wasn't a good day to go out. And if you see that coming, maybe you choose to stay home or, or stay, you know, go do something else, find a different activity. Go play uh, skee-ball. Go play skee-ball. I, I know that uh, there was a tragic accident at Lake of the Ozarks that involved a helicopter. And after all the digging through that case, it really appears that it was a day that you shouldn't have been flying a helicopter or it was a time that you shouldn't have been flying. You know, the weather was just too bad. So, Well, we hope we haven't discouraged anybody from going on vacation. Absolutely not. <laughs> I hope not. And, and it, just in the rare event that you might have too much fun on your vacation, hopefully these bits of advice will definitely yeah. help you somebody, overcome that. There's somebody like Eric out there for yes. you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we well, We'd be happy to help anybody that has questions. If they if they have questions and wanted to call, we'd be happy to try to help them. Great. So, you've been listening to "Is It Legal to?" a podcast service of the Missouri Bar, and we've glad to, we're glad we've had Eric Bergmanis with us to talk about having a safe and a legal vacation or a holiday weekend, and what to do if something does go wrong. Thanks for being with us, Eric. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. If you're wanting more information on this topic, we invite you to visit MissouriLawyersHelp.org, where you can find a wealth of information on various legal topics. We've been talking about today's laws, and it's important to look at how those laws flow from our constitutional rights and liberties. Tony Simons, the Missouri Bar's Citizenship Education Director, is here to share more. Summer, that magical time of the year when life slows down where we focus on things other than our daily responsibilities and obligations. Many of us seek respite and renewal on the water, frequently on the beautiful lakes and rivers we are blessed with here in Missouri. It's hard to imagine that the Constitution would intrude upon this perfect setting. But, as is the case with so many other aspects of our lives, the Constitution finds a way to be relevant. Wait a minute, I can hear you saying. Can't I even enjoy my recreational summer water activities without the interference of the government? The answer, as is so frequently the case when that question is posed, is no. The Tenth Amendment to the United States Constitution provides that any power not given by the Constitution to the federal government is reserved to the states. This provision known as the Reserve Clause, gives the states the so-called police power, the authority and responsibility to regulate the health, safety, and well-being of the people. Even though we can take vacations from our responsibilities, the government should not. The simple fact that people are involved in activities that can be labeled as recreational or fun does not preclude the possibility that people can get hurt during these activities. In fact, it is at these moments that we tend to let our guard down, that we fail to be as vigilant in assessing danger as we are in more formal circumstances. Add alcohol to the mix and you have a recipe for injury and even death. The statistics provided by the Missouri State Highway Patrol are sobering. Since the summer of 2018, over 150 Missourians have lost their lives in boating and drowning incidents. That many of these deaths occur during recreational activities does not lessen their tragedy or their significance. 
for Missouri to turn a blind eye to the reality that people are losing their lives in boating accidents would be an abdication, a betrayal of government responsibility. It is the obligation of the state to protect the health, safety, and well-being of its citizens. Missouri has responded by enacting legislation and empowering the Missouri State Highway Patrol's Water Patrol Division to make our waterways safer and to protect the lives of those whose priority it is to enjoy an afternoon away from the hustle and bustle of everyday life. Is it frustrating to have to deal with the interruption of talking with an officer from Water Patrol? when what you want to do is head to that special cove where you know the fish will be biting, or when you've promised your daughter to take her water skiing before it gets any more crowded on the lake? Yes. However, the government cannot and should not stop working, even when we are ready to play. In our constitutional system, states have a vital role in protecting the safety and well-being of its citizens— we would be well served to remember that essential reality. Nothing further, Your Honor. The more you know about the laws that impact our daily lives, the better decisions you'll be able to make about your life, your family, and your finances. I'm Farah Fight. And I'm Bob Pretty. Join us for another episode of the Missouri Bars podcast, Is It Legal Too? A regular look at our legal system and you.